bist du sehr aller Ehre. Was ist Wundes hier geschehe? Dass ein Magd ein Kind for the lost arts reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen this is dan baltic and this is matt pegas and this is our third no not our third episode Four. this is our fourth episode losing count here yeah after a kind of impromptu hiatus <laughs> not much of a hiatus <laughs> i guess a couple weeks break but we're uh we're back ready to, to knock out a bunch more we are back in black, as they. <laughs> the title of today's episode is A Tale of Two Essays, and the two essays in question are the uh, Flight 93 election by Michael Anton and Vi Victus by none other than Mencius Moldbug himself. Right. Sharpen. Yep, yep. We are talking about. Influential 2016 essay from Michael Anton written for the Claremont Review of Books, uh, which I now understand is like totally famous and considered to have been um, effective and influential in Trump's victory in 2016. I actually hadn't read it until the lead up to this episode. I, I guess, wasn't red pilled enough at the time. Um, and also, um, Curtis Yarvin, aka Mencius Moldbugs, uh, sort of post-mort on the 2020 election published on his uh, blog, Gray Mirror, uh, December of last year. That's right. And uh, actually, I was exposed to Flight 93 uh, at the time, but um, I, I too was not as red-pilled as I am now at that time. And I think I read it in an Andrew Sullivan column, saw a reference to it. And... Um, yeah, at the time, it struck me as very dire, and uh, in retrospect, very prescient. Yeah, for sure. Hey, remind me who Andrew Sullivan is. So, Andrew Sullivan was, like, in the 90s, the editor of The New Republic, gotcha. got into a big uh, scandal because he did a fair-minded profile of Charles Murray. Right, and uh, that uh, that seems to be a touchstone that gets liberals kicked out of white society. S seemingly yeah. so, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting with with Sullivan then because um. So look, I I to speak on it like the first time I came across Anton was his review of Bronze Age mindset, and then I then I came to understand that he actually he was he a White House staffer. He was actually you know in tight with Trump. so yeah yeah. So from Flight ninety three, he kind of jumped to notoriety uh he's and it's an example of uh a an anonymous essay he's writing as an anon and it was so widely read uh and he you know gained you know notoriety from it and he became a staffer on the national security council 
and uh, was, you know, a breath away from you know, the White House. Exactly. In, in the White House. In the White House, you know. Um, breath away from the president. Right. I think we talked about calling this episode possibly uh, from anonymity to to the Oval Office or something. I, the Tale of Two Essays is a good title too. But yeah, that. But Anton is. I say this because Anton is interesting because he does exemplify that perhaps better than anyone. Obviously, Moldbug has his connections. Michael Anton being one of Moldbug's connections. But the degree True. to which Anton is, you know. Um, talks about the frogs so to speak and talks about bronze age mindset but is also uh you know was was a white house staffer and um the degree which he's this essay in particular i guess was was so well received by um you know why you know more more respectable um well obviously andrew sullivan got in, tr- in trouble as you said but i i was also struck i guess it was a famous incidents incident uh not incident but a famous case where uh, yeah, part of the reception of the flight, uh, the flight ninety three election essay was that Rush Limbaugh dedicated part of his show to reading it off, which means it reached a massive uh, normicon slash normie audience, and um, as we said, Definitely. probably really did influence um, a lot of you know and enthuse a lot of voters, um, which remains fascinating, remains kind of singular. I don't know if there's any, how many other cases there are of someone. Um, like Anton, with the proximity that he does have to to some really interesting thinkers, um, but also crossing over to that really widespread, uh, you know, normie con, so to speak, audience. And it's something I'd like to see more of. Um, and it's something that I think, not to get ahead of ourselves, but um, in, in the, the other essay, the Moldbug essay, I feel like Yarvin, over the past few years, has kind of edged a little bit towards, you know, reaching that kind of audience too, which is actually... Which is huge, uh, and um, one of one of the very kind of good developments of the past few years. Absolutely, and these um, when you say that Flight ninety three reached a mainstream audience, and that is somewhat singular, hasn't really happened very recently. I think it's important to drill down on the fact that it is rare for any essay to really move history. But yet, there is a history of essays moving history. And so this does follow in a tradition of just, um, I mean, God, I, I'm sure uh, Anton mm-hmm. will appreciate uh, these comparisons as well <laughs> as Yarvin. But um, Common Sense, right. Spain, the Federalist Papers, uh, Martin Luther's Theses, the letter from a Birmingham jail by MLK, uh, you know, even Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. I mean, like right. realistically, I mean, it certainly had an impact. No, it's uh, uh, it's uh, obviously we are here partially to talk about literature, and I think part of our idea for this episode was to talk about the essay and the political essay as a literary form, and um. I think that Flight ninety three election is just such a good example of something that's both you know, a pleasure to read uh, and really have that sort of illocutionary effect uh, exactly. of getting people to the polls in 2016. Um, and I, yeah, I think it is in line with some of these essays you describe. I think, yeah, when we look back on it, people, I mean, already the Flight 93 election is in the lexicon and we're five years away. And that is, I don't think it's going away. And that is, that's something that he... You know, he saw a situation, he described it in a way that was, you know, memorable and uh, apt. And um, 
it you know that's good writing and i think what the two essays share here and not just that they bookend the trump presidency flight 93 being a kind of prelude to it and vivictus being a uh, a um well, not even a denouement, in an epilogue. Postmortem, and, um, yeah. A, yes, a postmortem. <laughs> uh, where um, I, I think we just, we already mentioned that uh, Yarvin described the um, uh, the various shenanigans that did or did not go on in the 2020 election. Right. And how um, the, well, his, we'll get into it, but his ultimate takeaway is that power is... Um, what elections are about and to the extent that we do not understand that um that's a a fault of ours not not really a fault of the systems because the system is not really a democracy or a democracy is not actually a democracy right well that's there. yeah that's uh you know in true sort of nrx form but also you know put compellingly not simply ideologically yarvin describes um, the degree to which there's always, well, we'll get into this later, but that there's always, yeah. his basic thesis is there's always election shenanigans, um, whether or not they're what ultimately moves the needle is perhaps besides the point, and, you know, that there's no real proof that in 2020 that they were what moved the needle, but nevertheless, his point is that they are part of the game, uh, and, uh, you know, whoever can more effectively come out on top, well, that's just part of justifying power uh, in the West, in the United States. Um, etc. But I think the main point we're trying to make right now is that these two essays, the Flight 93 election uh, from, 20, from 2016 and Vi Victus from 2020 really provide these bookends for this influential period. clear but, literary merit. Right. And, right. yeah. They echo and back to each other in, in interesting ways as well. Definitely. And one thing that I, we were talking about that I think is... Uh, you know, speaks very well for their writerly skills, is that these essays, though they deal with kind of complicated politics and complicated ideas, are written in a very colloquial manner. Right. And very readable, very like, you do not need a degree from anywhere to read this. In fact, maybe it would even help if you didn't. And in order to, and, and this is just something that I took away from it, because I, I, at a certain point, like many, uh, you know, nerds, I just tried to write political essays mm-hmm. because I'm like, oh, my ideas are, you know, pretty uh, spot on. And so I, it, it's hard. It's really hard to write about politics in a way that doesn't lapse into a sort of academic style that is boring and dead because in my, at least in my experience, conveying complicated ideas requires complicated explanation mm-hmm. and you're relying on the full arsenal of like this is how i break down you know difficult concepts and this is how i you know use you know language to explain things that are sophisticated and if you're able to do that without using very academic language then you're a pretty good writer yeah and what's more more than being a pretty good writer you know the material very well. Certainly. And that's something that Anton and Yarvin share. They clearly know this material, uh, this, you know, their their sense of 20th century history, of, you know, uh, of modern history and even ancient history, especially ancient history in uh, 
well, with regard to Yarvin at least, yeah, is uh, is spot on. Absolutely. I mean, in fairness, uh, just uh, not to put down Yarvin in any way, but just to to give my take on what you're saying, I I would give this uh, crown this this. Uh, this praise I would I would heap even more heavily onto Anton's essay. I mean, again, that this could both be such an exciting work for people, you know, on our corner of Twitter, but also sounds so good coming from Rush Limbaugh's mouth. And I, I should try and find the recording. I'm sure it's interesting to hear. And for that audience, really shows that this was, you know, in that Thomas Paine common sense vein. Uh, an essay for for everyone in a in a way that's um, extremely effective. Yarvin, yeah. I do think I don't even know why I need to qualify this because I do think both essays are fantastic. Uh, Yarvin's obviously is a little bit more for, the, for a little bit more of a big brain focus, you know, a little bit more uh, uh, in the sort of blog post form as opposed to um, the kind of you know really really popular essay that Flight ninety three is, but. Nevertheless, I think that Yarvin, I, I, some, you know, people are iffy. Some, some, some people um, don't like Yarvin's writing as much, but, but I do, and I think that he, um, his ability to to make entertaining sort of blog style writing has always been one of his strengths. So it's, it's a slightly more refined, uh, bigger brained audience that he's aiming at. But nevertheless, I, I do think um, both are both are written in a style. I, I can ag- I agree with you there. You know, both are written in a style. Uh, that has its that has its appeal and is that that is deceptively entertaining for the level of idea that it presents. Yeah, yeah, I think with regard to Yarvin, there's definitely a sense that he is writing to people who already understand him. Right, a little bit more so than Flight ninety three, but nevertheless, yeah. nevertheless, that you know they they are both rhetorically effective and entertaining pieces. Yeah, absolutely, and. The reason why is because they use not only colloquial language, but um, excellent metaphors. Right. And both hinge on a kind of critical metaphor. Exactly. And so the Flight 93 election, quite obviously, hinges upon the metaphor of Flight 93. And Flight 93, it struck me as that that is incredible. Uh, an incredibly apt and memorable way to characterize an, a moment in time, but all this, an election. And mm-hmm. what Anton did there was he reached back and he grabbed a moment of singular American valor and he used that and infused it into the, the metaphor of this election. Because what what in recent memory is a more valorous moment than the doomed passengers right. of Flight 93 charging the cockpit and conspiracy spirit theories be damned, <laughs> right? Whatever, yeah, whatever you happen to believe, like let's for you know let's take <laughs> that and say this you know this is what happened. And I mean, like it's it's incredible. Yeah, no, and, it is incredible. No, it, it's it's worth clearing our throat on that about the conspiracy theory thing. Man, I feel like I haven't heard this is this is the Anton's essay is like the one example. Flight not just nine eleven, but flight ninety three in particular. Out of the last maybe ten times it's come up in my conversations and my reading online, uh, this is maybe the one time when it was presented not in some kind of conspiratorial light. But nevertheless, yeah, again to put it aside as Anton does, it's not a you know he doesn't sell that at all. 
um, yeah, it's a, it's a really effective image. It's something that even someone, you know, below the age of 30 can remember very, very well. Um, and obviously an unparalleled, you know, image of valor, as you said. Um, and I think most critically, you know, you, you mentioned that you had come across this in 2016 and it seemed to paint a situ you know, a very dire situation for the country that you didn't necessarily agree with at the time. I certainly didn't have this perspective at, in 2016, which we'll get into later, but, um, but, the, but again, so we weren't necessarily on board in that way, but the strength of the metaphor is that it really says, uh, you know, it, it just, it just paints the situation as being so dire. The stakes inherent to that metaphor, um, could you know could not be more high obviously it's life and death in this case the life and death of, of the country as we know it and uh, it's difficult to imagine a metaphor that better conveys that and any lesser metaphor any metaphor where the stakes were slightly you know less I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of what such a metaphor could even be but if you know if, if it yeah. didn't really paint it as a, a airplane you know hurtling towards a building <laughs> uh, the essay would not have had the force that it had um, so it was an aptly picked uh, metaphor. Um, and, you know, that's a literary feat. Obviously, the essay is a political feat, and it makes a lot of good logical arguments, but that emotional literary metaphor uh, is truly what gives the essay its strength. Absolutely. And one line I particularly liked was um, the, and this, this too is a metaphor, that uh, voting for Trump was like playing Russian roulette. And, you know, you got a five out of six chance that you'll be fine, you know, one out of six that you blow your brains out. And um, voting for Hillary, in his estimation at the time, was like playing Russian roulette with a semi-auto. And obviously, I mean, like, the, the hilarious part of that is you cannot uh, play Russian roulette with a semi-auto. Mm. It just doesn't work that way. You can't, you know, spin the barrel. You're just going to, you know, obviously just going to blow your brains out. Yeah. And, <laughs> but I mean, that's a, the humor of that was just as I was reading it, I'm just like, oh, that's really funny. And um, that stuck with me too. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And uh, I mean, uh, I think we will get onto this later. I know we want to talk about the other metaphor, the Victus metaphor as well, maybe before getting into the more personal angle. But man, oh, yeah, no, go, I mean, thinking about, thinking about the stakes of that 2016 election and the way it was perceived at the time um by people who you know were i you know red pilled so to speak or were involved in these ideas which we now you know deal in on this podcast and on our you know twitter lives etc um man it brings me back to that mo it like does and doesn't bring me back to that moment because i i can put myself in the shoes of someone looking at that election and feeling that way to an extent, it's the way I feel now, not about any particular election, but just about, you know, the political future. You know, it's like it's on un, un, that, that sense of it being unclear. We're still playing Russian roulette, but, you know, maybe there's some kind of chance and we have to lean into that. Uh, I can put myself in those shoes. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I looked at the date. I think it was September 5th. I don't have it right in front of me. September 5th or 6th, 2016, just remembering where I was and, and just that, um, that, that moment uh, of, of uncertainty and um, not a moment I was intimately familiar with at the time, but it clearly encapsulates a moment nonetheless and makes me nostalgic. The, the excitement, the possibility, the hope is palpable uh, in the essay, which makes it a, maybe a pleasure, maybe a bit of a sadness, but maybe a, just a nostalgia uh, to read. 
Um, and yeah. it is sad precisely in light of what is discussed in Moldbug's Vivictus. essay, Vivictus. So I, if you want to get into that metaphor before we get into that contents. Yeah, no, I, I do. But also I want to respond to your isolating mm -hmm. it as a moment in time because I remember that too. And the pre-2016 the pre election world, it was different. And what was different? I remember in that September, that October, um, and, you know, maybe this is just because I was, you know, more blue-pilled than had of and but I think we all as you know, as a society were more blue pilled and mm -hmm. you know everyone thought that of course Trump isn't going to win and this is you know this is a fucking crazy thing that's like happening but like it's we all know how it's going to end right and like it, but but it was like there is this potential that the world is about to change in an insane manner and like yes at that time it felt insane and and that was that moment in time in, for me in September to November and you know and you know and afterwards when you know the world seemingly got turned on its head uh, in and but Vivictus providing the postmortem shows us that uh, the world was you know in some respects already on its head. Right, and, and in some yeah, it's just you yeah. revealed it to us. This right. just <laughs> the world was already on its head, and also that 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 specific moment, Trump's victory, November twenty sixteen, didn't necessarily change much. It was already on its head, but it's not like it became all that much more on its head during that presidency. Uh, it's like uh, mold and Vivictus. It's it starts with the premise that the world is on its head, um, but within that premise, there is this sense of there's very little, you know, that we as voters uh, can do yeah. to change. I, I don't remember. If, I don't think it's in Vivictus. I think actually Moldbug talked about it on his very, frankly, very good interview with Tucker, uh, where he describes, um, you know, the political events uh, in the United States in this era, especially you know with regard to elections. You know, in this era, with very limited powers to the executive branch as being like a, you know, a thunderstorm, um, you know, hundreds of thousands or thousands of feet above sea level. And you're swimming around in your um, coral reef or what have you. And there's like a light sort of shaking in the water that, you know, that's that's our that's our perspective on these political rumblings that happen. But at the end of the day, you know, we're we're deep. We're deep within water in that david foster yeah. wallace sense of that's you know this is just our reality and it actually isn't that affected by these ostensible rumblings um would seem to be a big part of you know moldbug's worldview yeah. in general but also that you know things are kind of topsy-turvy and on their head in the first place i mean to, to back up a half step again i mean i that summer of 2016 i i too did not think trump would win i was not a trump supporter then uh, I've, I've written, right, right. Yeah, I've written about this. Maybe I'll link it in the description. It is sort of addendum to my novel, which was somewhat influenced by my experience of that period of time. I, I kind of wrote about, you know, my experience of the 2016 election and not thinking Trump had a chance and being a sort of blue pilled, conservative sort of quasi liberal. I mean, yeah, I, I write about that, but 
uh, that yeah. moment, you know, basically being a bit of a status quoist at the time, um, and 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 not thinking Trump would win. But nevertheless, I definitely thought I definitely there was something in the air uh, long before Trump won, and, and really culminating around that time that the Flight ninety three election came out that. That, that the country was changing inevitably, you know, that, that all these chaotic forces were coming to light. I mean, that 2016, obviously um, not as hectic as 2020, um, but at the time it felt pretty hectic with um, some of the BLM stuff and, you know, the Dallas incident and also abroad. I remember there being a lot of ISIS activity yeah. and terrorist stuff. Like, it was definitely the world felt distinctly tumultuous. And there, there was... Uh, you know, great great forces were on the move, so to speak, and I remember that feeling. But to finish the thought, I don't even know where I'm necessarily going with this, but just you know, reflecting no, no, on my own experience and and reflecting on this essay, it is unbelievable to me how and maybe this is just getting older or something, but how almost I, I hesitate to use this word, but almost innocent 2016 felt like compared to now. Oh yeah, because at no. least at least you know, and it comes across in, in the Flight 93 election. There is an innocence to that essay. That essay is definitely about, you know, us being in a dire situation. And as I said, it was evident from, you know, to everyone from political fringe, you know, fringe political people to normies like I was at the time that, you know, again, great and powerful forces were on the move. All of that was evident. But there was still this innocence to the sense that, um, you know, maybe something could happen. Maybe there, maybe there could be a Trump in the case of the hope inherent in Anton's yeah. essay. That wasn't my hope at the time, but I still had a certain degree of hope. Like, this is chaotic, but things are going to like come back to some kind of norm, or something's going to happen. Something's going to change. Yeah. Twenty twenty plus, you know, pandemic era plus, uh, right up to the moment now. I, you know, I not to be a black pillar. I'm not not to be pes- even particularly pessimistic. It just feels like there's so much muck and 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 as as yarvin describes in the essay and maybe there was in 2016 too but it's not how i was feeling um so much going on below the surface um in the 2020 election as yarvin describes but now even post 2020 election just it i no longer have that sense that i'm living in a straightforward reality like that it just yeah i i kind of take for granted you know the type of view that moldbug presents in vivic is that politics is largely ineffective and there's not a lot we can do and i just there's a lack of i don't fully take um you know the political scenario the political situation seriously there's a non-seriousness to it um and and i can't imagine either a trump or an obama arising out of it um is is kind of my that's like my loss of innocence from 2016 to 2020 that's maybe charted in the essays I think a part of that is explained in Vivictus with the metaphor that Yarvin uses of the gigaphone. And the gigaphone is uh, a literary device that he employs to uh, say that during Trump's presidency and continuing now, uh, the the cathedral, which is another metaphor, which you know we we all pretty much know, but we'll, we'll get into employs the media and you know the 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 sense-making organs of the body politic to um uh promote a certain you know message and if that message is that the january 6th protesters are insurrectionists that's that's one of them uh all all sorts of you know various messages that um hammer home 
a certain point. And what happened during the Trump presidency, according to Yarvin, is the uh, gigaphone, as he describes it, the, uh, the ability of the cathedral, the sense-making lead to um, get over ideas, promote ideas, was turned up so loud for so long that now we kind of see that it's, you know, it's fake. Right. And, think, and that's, yeah. that's what happened to us over these four years. That's, I mean, that's frankly what red-pilled me. What yeah. red-pilled me was seeing that the media was just so in the tank. And that, and that the, the media, while being in the tank, like during the, the BLM riots, uh, protests, whatever you want to call them, uh, the, the way they presented the um, uh, medical establishment saying that you, you don't have to worry about COVID if you're going to a protest, <laughs> which was, you know, yeah. just, it was just, it was just insane the way, and the coverage was such and is so and continues to be so one-sided and unfair that it just became blatantly obvious i think so yeah and it, it broke a lot of it didn't break people it set them free it broke their chains right and they realized oh wait a minute and so for me what it did for me that this metaphor of the gigaphone the gigaphone was turned up so loud that it uh it woke me up and I'm like, you know, for many people, what it did is it's like, oh, shit, if I say that, you know, uh, that it's, you know, disingenuous or, you know, hypocritical to uh, protest and forget about COVID, but otherwise COVID's a really big deal. If I say that, I'm a bad person, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to this. Many people got that and they don't, they don't think further. They're just like, well... Um, I'm, you know, I, and it, it's, you know, a reasonable way to be. You want to preserve your, your money. Exactly. You want to preserve your, your family. You want to, you know, and so you don't want to look too deeply into things. You just want to do what people tell you to do so you can eat. So you can, you know, right. take care of your, you know, your people. Which is perfectly and, reasonable. But you're saying a lot of people are now doing it. And this is I my mean, like, I, Yeah. I wish I could be that way. <laughs> like, but the problem is the gigaphone. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't interact with everyone the same way. Some people see the hypocrisy, and it bothers them. And it, you know, I, I it couldn't not bother me. Of course. And so, yeah, I think that's what happened to a lot of people during the Trump presidency. Yarvin's gigaphone was turned up too loud and people noticed and it hasn't and, gone down yet you know what i mean like even no. though we're about a year away from trump's uh defeat <laughs> in the election yeah. uh we're still dealing with this kind of double think um you know i don't think either you or i dan are like total covid skeptics but everyone notices the hypocrisy and when it comes to the you know the protests and the way those are treated everyone notices the hypocrisy um, and it had the gigaphone. Maybe it's gone down a little bit, but it's it's not gone fully down. Um, the media, the media has shattered its credibility. The degree to which the media was part and parcel of the Democratic Party and part and parcel of what we'd call the derp state or deep state uh, is totally evident. And I think it's evident to a lot of people who didn't even vote for Trump. Um, yeah. And I I think that um, not even to like 
get into any specifics, but like a lot of people on the forum we met, like uh, Justin Murphy's forum, the sort of Justin Murphy crowd a little bit, or, or people adjacent to that, like a lot of those people are probably Democrats, you know what I mean? Um, but there's yeah. a, like, there was obviously a lot of red pill Republicans and nationalists and conservatives in 2016. But the thing I keep noticing, the key, people I keep meeting, especially out here in California, is like people who are like, they maybe voted for Biden. They are they're not about to necessarily vote for Trump in twenty four, but they are they are very aware of this gigaphone thing, and the, the media has shattered its credibility. They know that that what the status quo that we have now is somehow broken in terms of the way you know in terms of media and news and information that there's something broken in that and something very broken just in, in, in society and the way that we're allowed or not allowed to explore ideas. And that's one thing that I guess gives me hope. As you said, it, it's not quite as positive as everyone broke their uh, broke free. Um, there's still a lot to combat against. But nevertheless, I think there is a growing body of people who are very ready for something very new. Um, Definitely. And, and, and that, does, that does give me um, some hope. Definitely. And I think something that it showed, what the Gigafund showed is, and uh, I'm going to draw this to uh, another Yarvin metaphor, it showed that everything is about power. And that, like, it's not about, you thought the media was about truth, you thought that the, uh, the cathedral, which is the sense-making apparatus of the body politic, you thought that was about, like, actual ideas, it was about power and it remains about power. It's about, you know, projecting power, controlling people. And that is essentially what Vivictus, the metaphor itself of Vivictus is about. And this is a great entree in my explaining what Vivictus is, because I think it's really cool. Yeah. It, um, it goes back to um, when Rome was a city state. It's probably, I guess, like, oh God, I'm not, an expert in oh, history. Yeah. I'm thinking probably like 400 BC, yeah. 350 BC, something like that. At that time, Rome and Rome periodically before Caesar killed most of them was uh, being overrun by Gauls and, you know, various Germanic barbarians. And so one of these uh, times, uh, they Rome was sacked and the you know various uh, elements that were still alive in Rome held out on this hill, and uh, they, in exchange for uh, the barbarians leaving, they bargained with the barbarian chieftain, the Gallic chieftain uh, Brennus, and they bargained with him that he would leave if they gave him one hundred, no, one thousand pounds of gold, and so Brennus agreed. They got these big scales and. Uh, uh, the Romans were piling on gold and they felt that the counterbalance on the scale, and this is like an old style scale. So it has like something on one side, that's a thousand pounds, something on another. And they felt that he had piled on his side, uh, way more than a thousand pounds. So they were, you know, in order to balance it out, they were providing more than a thousand pounds of gold. They were getting screwed and, um, they complained about this. And so Brennus, uh, shouted Vivictus, and he threw his sword onto the pile of the counterbalance, adding the weight of his sword. And what Vivictus means is woe to the vanquished. And what that means, of course, is um, I won, fuck you. 
Right. And that is um, that is the message. If you're listening to the gigaphone, that's the message underneath the message. It's this is about power. This is like you know the various challenges to the 2020 election. I mean, like I couldn't even really follow it because, yeah. like, you know, in the lead up to the election, the Hunter Biden stuff, the you know Twitter and everyone colluding to uh, black out a story that was uh, almost like completely legitimate and like very certainly shouldn't have been like you know uh, blacked out. Mm-hmm. It um, you know seemingly actually was his laptop. And I don't know about the veracity of all the emails, but in any case, it's something that you know certainly should have been looked into. But the collusion of the media to suppress that story, and you know the the various ideological commitments of um, the you know people who count the votes, like the yeah, if people spend four years saying Donald Trump is Hitler. Well, don't you think they would, you know, fuck right. around with the votes well, to get Hitler out? Well, and says that, you know, he and that that's always been one of my predominant thoughts. I I have not, as you said, I've not followed closely every in and out of the story of was there was there not any kind of fraud. But I, from the beginning, I thought there is definitely there is definitely ample motivation. I mean, that's a matter yeah. of public record. Um, but no, I shouldn't go too far on this without saying, like, I, uh, I concur with, uh, with Yarvin and I think with you, Dan, and I think with a lot of people that I don't have any proof that, uh, there is fraud on any, anything like a large enough scale to affect the outcome of, of the election. Correct. But, uh, so, so, and that's, that's where I stand with it. But Yarvin says, you know, there's, there's motivation. We don't, you know, do we really, try, you know, there's certain cities, you know, I, I, one thing that always struck me, this is kind of a side, but one thing that always struck me is like, it seems like a, the place that maybe they looked into it the most was Arizona. Um, yeah. But it strikes me like, you know, the, the, the really, the places where I would be the most suspicious of our cities, like Philadelphia, like Detroit, you know, there's corrupt city officials, uh, you know, and I don't, again, I don't have proof of this, but that's where, that's where I would have looked. And I say this partially because one thing I actually learned about American history from uh, Via Victus is uh, Yarvin's description of, I think, the 1960 Nixon-Kennedy um, election. How? And I oh, asked yeah, a, a friend of mine who's, who's pretty well-versed in history who said, yeah, it's basically considered likely that, uh, you know, Illinois probably should have gone to Nixon that year and that there was, you know, that, that they basically did something very similar to what the accusation would be against these states yeah. in 2020 that they held off to wait to see what time of titles they needed and then they ele- released uh, the totals wait and apparently in that case the history a lot of historians think there probably was but the other thing that this friend of mine who I was asking a bit more about this case said because Yarvin just kind of does it as a footnote was that um yes Illinois probably should have gone to Nixon but that singular thing was not what tipped that election so that was yeah. kind of instructive to me, too. Right now, I would say, if you ask me about the 2020 election, I would say there may well have been certain fraud, but was it enough to tilt the scale of the election? Probably not. To you know, I think Biden, yeah. for, for reasons that not only that the mainstream media would tell us, but also that the, you know, the five percenters of the world, <laughs> if, if, if our listeners are familiar with that whole meme, uh, for those reasons as well, you know, Trump's declining popularity with white males, the general sense 
uh, he wasn't very effective. I, I think that also, you know, is probably why he lost as well. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the important point is there is no way to really know. Like, there's no way to, like, I, I do believe that, you know, yeah, Biden probably won. Those are good reasons. But, like, the point is, like, you can't trust the media. You can't trust the vote counters. So, like, who fucking knows, really? Yeah. And that's a problem. And that is, um, uh, okay, so, yeah, that that is a problem. And then, like, when, you know, they various like challenges to the Supreme Court. The the Supreme Court dismissed a lot of these challenges on procedural grounds. And then the media turns to it and they're like, well he they lost a bunch of court challenges. And it's like, well okay, but it, they lost the challenge because it was based on the doctrine of mootness, which is like essentially whether a case whether you have standing to bring a case. And it's like the court saying like, nah, you actually can't bring this case because we, we're not gonna let you. I mean yeah. it's like these are the things that, you know, are determining the outcome of the election. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that is, you know, that shows you that whether who who had the most votes is kind of and the thing is like in all of these elections right now the country is so divided it's going to always be incredibly close and when it's this incredibly close it's not really who has the most votes who wins because it's really hard to even figure out who has the most votes because who really has the most votes is the person who has the most power because if you have the most power you can turn votes into votes <laughs> right 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 and i think that yarvin's point i don't want to mischaracterize it but his point is like at some point no it's you know it's like it's not it's not who gets the most votes it never was that way um, but it's about, you know, it, it, but getting votes is obviously a big part of it, but it's about then leveraging that to justify power. And there's, you know, there's yeah. a whole apparatus beyond simply votes that justifies power. And one of his key arguments is that, you know, there's always a lot that goes on beyond just voting, whether it's fraud or, or, or whether it's the courts making decisions. You know, in 2000, I guess that technically went the Republicans' way. Not that most Republicans nowadays would be, you know, remember Bush too fondly. But nevertheless, um, you know, there's always that extra level of justification or lack of justification of power. And Yarvin, being not a, not neither a Democrat in the sense of being a Democrat, part of the Democratic Party, but also just not pro-democracy, um, has no problem with that and thinks that's part and parcel of the whole deal and encourages uh, i mean i don't think he's encouraging republicans to uh deal in fraud per se but he is i do think he is encouraging us to you know think harder about the way you know we kind of justify our own power and and what we do with that power um which is another yeah. key uh another key thesis of Vivictus is his basically his critique of trump for his failure uh, you know, to use what power he did have um, to affect the kind of change that, you know, Moldbug would have liked to see. So I think that one, Yarvin, in describing Trump, he, you know, he obviously was very hard on him. He didn't vote for him the second time around. Uh, I, you know, like myself. And, um, but one thing, and this is, I share this 
Garvin as well, what uh, a good thing that came from the Trump presidency is the introduction of something that Garvin refers to as dream politics. Right. Which is, and this is something that we've talked about before in terms of the, the magic of the frog Twitter, of the manosphere, to manifest uh, a game show host as president. Yeah. It's, it's dream politic. It's like you, you can, and it's coming up against, you know, the it, it happened, and then the cathedral kicked into overdrive, turned up the gigaphone to 11 because they realized that, like, holy shit, the people can actually do, they're capable of uniting and, you know, yeah. memeing things that we don't want to happen into existence. And so if Trump showed that, you know, a meme, the meme of President Trump could travel through 4chan all the way to the White House if it showed that, then it could, it could show us other similar passages. Dream politic could, um, you know, it could uh, lead to um, the uh, our imminentizing. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, uh, <laughs> certain certain other things that we want. And you know, maybe it's not game show host president. Maybe it's. Um, yeah. Tucker Maybe Carlson is president. I don't yeah, know. Tucker, <laughs> no, or, not everyone says opposite well, Yeah. I was going to do the Caesar pill, but right. yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Well, what I think that what Moldbug wants pretty unequivocally is some kind of uh See, well, Yeah, obviously but, we know Moldbug wants Caesar. Right, but, but uh, even, even other possibilities remain open. I mean, this is what he describes as... The project of his blog, Gray Mirror, and of his of his work as of late. I mean, I guess if you look at his, uh, you know, unqualified reservations, his old blog, you could look at that as kind of his, you know, the mold buggy and worldview laid out. I guess this second leg of his blogging career with Gray Mirror is more about this idea of dream politic and more about this idea of, frankly, regime change. Uh, you know, soft regime change, but regime change nonetheless, and dreaming that up. Um, it's something he's committed to, and I think that's that is the it's in an essay where he, I mean, he he says, you know, Trump didn't prove himself willing to lead. He Moldbug, you know, Moldbug. No one was more of a Trump supporter um, than Moldbug in 2016, is my understanding. I think he had this hope that he could be this American Caesar that he was not. Um, so he's quite harsh on Trump, as we've said in Viadictus, but will ultimately uh, the final sort of nod he does give to Trump is that he validated this idea of dream politic and helps, uh, you know, the creative few uh, to potentially, you know, imagine themselves uh, not necessarily as president, but, you know, it, it unlocked our imaginations for, for, for potential alternatives. I mean, I think even... Uh, this is a ridiculous example, but I'll say it in the last. Even like the whole Kanye West of it all. Um, yeah. I remember him saying like, oh, Trump showed that anyone can be president. Maybe that's not the best interpretation of that, but it's almost a version of no, no. Moldbug. Yeah, there's something saying, to that. Yeah, yeah. Moldbug in uh, an interview, and we're going to give a little shout out here to Good Old Boys. Mm -hmm. He was on Good Old Boys, a pod that we both like. Yes. And... Um, 
he said something to the effect of riffing on this idea of dream politic that the American public today, more so than 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is um, it's a, a postmodern audience. And they are, you know, looking for symbols and meaning. And the example that he gave is a movie like Inception from like 2010 yeah. would not work in the 80s. Right. People in the 80s would see it and they'd be like, what the fuck? I'm supposed to yeah. know this is a dream and this is a symbol for that, and this and that. Like, And whereas, you know, people in 2010, they're just like, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. this is a symbol for that. And it's not like, you know, these, these are scholars. These are just like teenagers right. or something. No, it's a really compelling and, example he gives there. And I don't want to yeah. be Mr. Actually here. But I actually think he said, 80s, yes, I agree. It wouldn't have made sense in the 80s. But I think it's even more effective to think like the 50s or the, or, or the early 60s. Like, in 80s, yeah. you might get some stragglers. But I, I, I'm trying to, the mo for me, that metaphor is even more effective to imagine, you know, highly educated people of the 50s. Just like, I think it would have come across as gibberish. Yeah, but today it's something that his his point is that the American people are ready to make leaps of imagination, yes, leaps of intuitive leaps, and they don't need to be persuaded with a lot of messaging, a lot of you know, you know nudging in this and this direction. They are ready to turn on a dime when they get the right meme. When they get the meme that kind of like is just like, oh, this is that. And they see that and then they just go for it. And that is, you know, maybe very optimistic, maybe not very optimistic because it could be a meme that we don't particularly right. like. No, uh, yeah, I think, but, it's, I think it's quite uh, neutral, but it is definitely a sign um, that change is inevitable and that change will come. I mean, again, to go back to even obviously 2016, we are, it was already a pretty postmodern time, but even compared to 2016 now, I'm just so much more enmeshed in, in viewing the world and politics as this deep, deep layers of non-seriousness and ineffectiveness. But within that, there is possibility um, for sure. And that's, I think, part of what Moldbug means by dream politic worth noting i think i believe ross douthat uh you know the resident new york times yeah. conservacle on um this you know use it as a diss to trump initially to say he, he dealt in dream politics you know he's this populist you know you know whittling out these ideas that he can't execute upon maybe he ultimately couldn't but nevertheless and yarvin acknowledges that but nevertheless <laughs> uh had, there still is this place in yarvin's heart uh, you know, in political imagination for um, just the mere notion uh, of these kinds of ideas. And I think that that, you know, Yarvin still hangs his hat on that, that there is, you know, there's this increasing sense, that, as we talked about earlier, there's this cr increasing sense of illegitimacy um, of those in power uh, that Trump, yeah. Trump ushered in, you know, and you, you don't have to like Trump necessarily to acknowledge that, that he, you know, that that he he, uh, you know, stripped the, the the veil away, and now uh, it is much more evident, you know, that we're living in a less legitimate regime, and I yeah. I think that is um, whether you want to call it positive, negative, or neutral, sort of the moment we find ourselves in 
post-2020 election, now 2021, this growing sense of illegitimacy in the air, which is um, scary, but also rife, pregnant with potential. And speaking of pregnant with potential, and speaking of dream politic, this is uh, a moment where dreamers and, you know, people who are uh, creators, um, people who are artists have the opportunity to step up and play a role in culture that uh, they rarely get to play because rarely is it the case that everything is up for grabs the way it is right now. And that is, uh, you know, it goes, it hits right to the center of our mission statement, which is we want to provide a platform for and discuss dissident art. And what this moment calls for is dissident art. It calls for art that is uh, addressed to an audience that is um, outside of uh, the cathedral or or in the cathedral. They yeah they wanna they wanna hear voices from the outside. This um, this is the time for a new right, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. No, I um I did a conversation with uh, Gio Panichetti, uh, you know, from Gio's Art Corner on Twitter a few months back on Robert Stark's podcast. We got to get Gio on this podcast, but we talked yeah. about something similar. I, I listened to that one actually. Yeah, really it's, a, it's it. definitely one of the better episodes I've done uh, with Robert recently, but like. Uh, and you mentioned this metaphor earlier, like we're in the wilderness right now, following, you know, Trump's defeat via Victus. <laughs> and it is a wilderness, but within that wilderness, um, it's a opportunity for tremendous kind of, I'll just call it spiritual growth. Not that we're dealing in religion here per se, but it's a time to kind of mold ourselves and mold our views. And it's a, I think it's a very creative time and at a time when, Looking at things from a more cultural angle rather than electoral uh, is fruitful, and that's a big part of I think why we want to you know do this podcast uh, and and we'll continue to do it. Absolutely, yeah, indeed. In terms of so we talked about how these two essays kind of bookend the Trump presidency, and and we've talked about you know what has changed from 2016 to 2020. A lot has changed in some ways. Not a lot has changed in others. Um, But one comparison that I found myself making between the two essays is how they make... Their upshots are very different because the upshot of one is basically a call to action to go vote in the case of Flight 93 essay. And the call to action of the other is is kind of what we just described in terms of dream politic and dreaming up new alternatives. Those are different calls to action. But where they definitely converge is that both um, both are totally pessimistic about sort of mainstream conservative, the mainstream conservative establishment, conservative money, so to speak. Um, you know, that's a big part of what Flight 93 does. Be, before even saying much positive about Trump, it just talks about how conservatives and the conservative movement has basically, you know, revol- devolved to a movement which shows up to lose every few years or even when it wins um it's basically just a a retarder on you know inexorable progress i mean that's kind of what the uh conservative movement has been perhaps for decades and a big part of a big part of um anton's point in the essay is that 
we should not be complacent with that and that rather we really should take our conservative or right-wing understanding of human nature seriously and pose an alternative. He sees a hope in Trump that maybe doesn't come into fruition. The commonality between that and what I see in Vivictus is that I think Yarvin too uh, is just very, you know, lays on the criticism of any kind of smaller-minded Republican or conservative or right-wing thinkers um, who are sort of content just to take these small symbolic victories. Uh, the difference is that Trump is kind of the focal point of um, Darwin's target. I mean, I kind of read Vi Victus as taking a similar point to what Anton makes about the uselessness of conservative mainstream conservatism, conservative ink, and also saying that Trump ended up kind of being part of this. Was that your read on it too, to an extent? More or less, yeah. Yeah, yeah that... Well, I mean, I think that Anton clearly differentiates between Con Inc., which um, is, you know, very, very Coke influenced Mm -hmm. and like some of which the more right populist side of Con Inc., to the extent it has that side, is just, you know, fraudulent they just, you know, they mouth the words, but they cash the checks, and they're content to never get anything done. And, you know, indeed, they won't, you know, they even if they are red-pilled, they're never going to say it. And I think that Yarvin's take on that is, you know, more or less the same. And that Trump, um, I mean, I, I think that Trump, in Yarvin's estimation is, you know, he's not, um, uh, he's not like a, someone who's just cashing the check because he's not even in on the game. He doesn't understand the game. He's someone who showed up and he like got rolled. Right. Maybe the difference is, I don't think that Yarvin would say, or Anton certainly wouldn't say that Trump showed up to lose. He showed up to win. Make no mistake. Uh, and to his credit, he showed up to win, um, but he didn't win. So I guess that that is the difference. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah, not. I think... Trump is still an exceptional, and I don't mean exceptional as goodness. So I just mean he's an exception to the norm for sure. But he nevertheless lost, and that's what's so dismaying. But again, woe to the vanquished. <laughs> well, yeah, woe to the vanquished. And I think that in in the sense of, yes, tying it again to that dream politic, what Trump did was he busted the Overton window open. Right. And he, it, it almost, you needed a maniac to do that. To, you know, for right. someone to say, like, you know, Mexico is not sending its best people, like, there's a lot of truth to that. And, you know, the type but in order to say that, you had to be the type of person who's willing to, like, set himself on fire. And, you know, to say, you know, various other things that Trump has said, uh, you know, you have to be the type of person who is either so brave as to be, you know, retarded, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what Trump was. He was just like, you know, he was a game show host as president, you know, shock jock as president. But what he did was he got people thinking, he expanded the Overton window. He made it possible that, you know, in this world of dream politic, now 
I don't know if it's Ron DeSantis. I don't know if it's Blake Masters. I don't know if it's uh, someone who we haven't heard of. But someone is going to take these issues and have the same level of bravery. Not the same level of bravery, because Trump did it. He did it first. So you don't have to be as brave to say something that someone already said that was very difficult to say. So he, he, you know, he kind of... He charged the Maxim guns, and he got shot to pieces. Right. And what this means is, but he, you know, he, maybe he took out the nest. He took out the machine gun nest. Yeah. And this means that the next guy, he can he can really put some uh, some miles on the the scoreboard or whatever. Exactly. Just, you know, and, he can and, run with it. Well, look, I don't want to force an optimistic ending to this, but look, Yarvin and Anton are, uh, they're indeed friends and they agree on a lot. So it's not as if these two essays are coming from a completely different place. And I think that in a way, Vi Victus, for as pessimistic as it is for any Republican reader, uh, it validates an element, I would say, of the Flight 93 election. It's saying that, look, we did, we did, we took this shot, we, we rolled the barrel, um, I don't think we shot ourselves in the head. It didn't exactly go as we wanted to, but nevertheless, we did it, you know? And um, and how it ultimately shakes out is not clear, but nevertheless, it was good to at least try. And in trying, um, you know, things have been irrevocably changed, and it's not even as corny or as simple as that there's still hope, but there's still a possibility. And I think that's what Anton and... Yeah, sure.